Welcome to the first episode of We the People. I'm Emily Wismus, Editor-in-Chief of the Wildcat Chronicle. Today, we'll be talking about healthcare. Obamacare and reproductive healthcare have become two of the most debated issues in national politics. Obamacare was enacted in March of 2010. The law prohibits insurers from denying coverage to those with pre-existing conditions. It also raises the threshold for Medicaid coverage, so those earning up to 133% of the federal poverty level can still be covered by Medicaid. In 1916, Margaret Sanger opened America's first birth control clinic, or what is now known as Planned Parenthood Federation of America. Since then, the organization has been under much scrutiny either by past presidents, past congressmen, citizens, future congressmen, future presidents, and our future generation. This election season, these are two topics that have become more and more controversial, in part because we had our first woman presidential candidate of a major party, and in part because we have a president-elect with an open opposition to places like Planned Parenthood. In this episode, we'll go deeper into both issues. First off, I'd like to introduce my guests. I have here with me social studies teacher Candace Fickus, English teacher Brian Turnbell. Also with me is the director of product development and business strategy of Ad Hoc LLC, Daniel X. O'Neill. So thank you for being here. Um, let's just get right to it. Mr. O'Neill, can you describe um, the healthcare insurance world before and after Obamacare? Sure. Before Obamacare, the health insurance market was very much employer-based, which means that most of Americans got their health care from their employer uh, as a benefit. And when they left their job, they, there was no what they call portability of health care. Um, so they would lose their health insurance from their employer and they'd have to get a new job um, or turn to the private market, uh, which was very state-based and um, based on the rules for health insurance for that particular state. So um, it, after Obamacare, uh, there's a federal program and a federal market, the FFM, the Federally Facilitated Marketplace for Health Insurance. And it makes for an easier uh, way to obtain the insurance. It's not employer-based. Um, still, the employer-based market is probably the largest uh, health insurance market that we have, but um, those are the major changes um, before and after Obamacare. And I know that Medicaid and Medicare kind of go along with Obamacare. So how does that really work? Because anybody that I've talked to, any uh, high school students or even um, older people beyond my age that I've talked to are still slightly confused how that works. Sure. So Medicare is the program, uh, federal health insurance program for insurance and care program for seniors, and Medicaid is a federal health insurance and care plan for uh, low-income people. Uh, a lot of Obamacare depended on the expansion of Medicare. And many states, states had the opportunity to take extra federal dollars to expand Medicare at the same time that Obamacare was, was put in. Um, the many states run by uh, members of the Republican Party rejected the Medicare provision of Obamacare, which uh, 
you know, reduce the amount of healthcare delivered to uh, people in their states. Um, but anyway, the Medicare and the Medicaid programs work in a similar fashion in the sense that uh, there are clinicians like doctors, dentists, and uh, other healthcare providers who become certified Medicare and Medicaid uh, providers. Uh, people who are on those benefits programs obtain services from those clinicians, and then the clinicians bill back to the government on a fee-for-service basis. So just where are like some major uh, groups of people that now have health care that didn't have it before Obamacare? Obamacare expanded health care for a number of types of people, including uh, people in their 20s who have no other insurance, whether they've graduated from college or didn't go to college, and uh, they uh, can be covered under the parents' plan. Uh, lots of uh, uh, freelance people, people who are not employed uh, in an outside service but are self-employed or starting a new business or doing a services, um, participating in the services industry like graphic designers and developers, things along those lines. And then uh, the working poor, people who have jobs, uh, but they're not, uh, they don't have much of a benefit plan for uh, uh, insurance. So obviously reforming Obamacare seems to be um, one of the most important things for the Republican Party today, and they've already taken steps to start the process. Um, and just, Ms. Fickus, Mr. Turnbaugh, either of you, do you think um, they could repeal and replace, or what do you think the next steps are for them? Can they repeal and not have a replacement? I mean, it's kind of redundant in a way. Well, I mean, they can do whatever they want, I, I guess. <laughs> yeah. um, it depends how the American public's going to react to that. Um, if you look back historically, any time that there has been some type of um, service or program uh, that's been brand new and brought into American society, um, even if there's some complaints about it, uh, we get used to having it. And once we have something, uh, we don't want it taken away. Yeah. So for groups of people who didn't have good coverage, um, struggled to find affordable care, um, now they have it. And if we take that away from them, they're going to be angry. <laughs> without a doubt. So um, I, it seems like some of the Republicans do want to keep some programs with it. Uh, the questions become what parts of it will be repealed. And one thing that I would hope uh, would stay for some young people, as many of the people who might be listening to this podcast as students here, as they are getting ready to graduate, is that coverage till you're 26 years old. Yeah. Um, because um, it, it used to be you, you ran out of it. So then what do you do? Do you go without insurance in your college years? Or uh, like when I went to college at University of Illinois, we had to buy that insurance um, on our own. So that was a couple hundred dollars that was put in my student fees, making college a little more expensive. Um, and so we also know that we need to encourage students to go to college. We need to make it as much affordable as we can. We know many students go beyond just a bachelor's degree. We know many students might take more than four years, have to work part-time, so forth, and can't get access to that. So um, I would hope that that's one program that does stay uh, around for a while. So just as a broad question about Obamacare, why can't the United States get to a point where we're like Canada, France, Spain, 
all these other countries that have such a simplistic healthcare system. Why, why can't we get to that level? Or can we, but how do we get there? We are a free market capitalist society and have been for a long time. That idea of economic freedom is what drives a lot of our decisions here. So when you look at some of the European countries that has not been the same, their philosophy is more of a mixed economy and used to uh, some kind of government types of programs. So it's about changing the philosophy of people um, in order if we want to support those programs. Now, if we become more of a society that does want the government to take care of some things, then we might go that way. But it is um, our ideals of Americans that, sep us, that separate us from the rest of the world and thus are... Um, decisions about what we want to do with things like healthcare, and you know, and part of that is you know constructing a type of very helpful empathy when we start hearing stories about people who have had um, it, maybe just it could have been just maybe even something as small as one visit to the emergency room, and how that could have tumbled out a economic consequence that now all of a sudden they can't make bills, they can't, and and all of the implosion that might happen financially as a consequence of that. That we would have coverage now has been incredibly helpful uh, for people. So, you know, to have gone to switch to a uh, single payer immediately, would be, that 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 would have been Herculean to say the least yeah. of what would have happened. <laughs> no um, and so, um, and that and just you know, logistically, you know, quite quite difficult to, uh, to do. But you know, when when you start like you know, I think part of it is you know that we have to start listening to the stories of what people's needs are. I was mentioning earlier that I have a former student who is a musician. Many other students, uh, as Mr. O'Neill is, uh, you know, we have come into a, a, a new type of blip in our economy, which is the gig economy, where we have yeah. uh, companies that may do freelancing. And, you know, for those people that can make a good uh, wage, but they might not be able to afford the premium or not even have a job that's offered, this has been everything for them. So take my former student who's, who was a mus musician. He may have had, I want to say, some type of maybe a, a carpal tunnel type of mm -hmm. issue where he needed um, some therapy. But upon getting the therapies that he's needed, he's now able to live life. He's uh, he's 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 gigging all the time, um, and he's doing what he loves. Um, he will say over and over again, "Thank." He thanks over and over again what uh, this ACA has done for him to live his life as a, as a consequence. Because you can't. You know, your health, until it's taken away from you, you don't know how profoundly uh, it, it alters all of your, the tra trajectory of your life. So, um, and so many people um, have, know that. So, I think, you know, how do we increase the scope of empathy so we can begin to understand how important it is that we keep some of these major um, pieces in the ACA moving forward if that indeed is what the uh, Republican Congress is going to do? If I could. Uh, add on to what you said. So I have a personal story of my mom being completely and totally healthy at 62 years old and one day wakes up and doesn't feel very good and her body kind of aches and thinks she has a cold and within 24 hours uh, she's paralyzed and can't walk. And um, that left her unable to work. And she had uh, very basic coverage uh, of health insurance at the time and within uh, about two or three weeks she had over $250,000 in medical bills. Wow. Pretty much uh, bankrupting my family. And this was before there were these limits. And um, there was also not a lot of patient rights at that time, too. And so, um, you know, she was fighting vasculitis and her body was trying to kill yeah. itself. 
and um, it was a fight of medicine. Nope, we're not going to cover that. Uh, but if you don't take that, then uh, your kidneys are going to fail. Your body's going to attack your kidneys. So they didn't want to give her some medicine that would have helped with an, uh, an anti-rejection uh, drug. But at $1,600 a month, how do you do that? How do you yeah. navigate through some, some system that way? And then now she's got a pre-existing condition and she can't work. So she's 62. She doesn't qualify for Medicare. Now she's supposed to go without insurance. So that was the reality of uh, her life before the Affordable Care Act. And we're, in many cases, this is one major health problem can economically ruin people yeah. in a short amount of time. Cancer, stage four cancer, um, you know, a, a heart defect. Lots of problems where you're looking at medical bills that are just outrageous. Uh, if it's your child, you don't care. You want them to get a new yeah. heart. Um, what, are you, what are you supposed to do about that? And those were things that scared people when there weren't these uh, kind of limits. Yeah. And, and even it's, <laughs> and that's the calamitous element of it. What happens when it's something which is, boy, you know, I haven't been screened, but you know what, I need to pay for this bill. Now, what happens if you don't catch that screening? And indeed, that could have been a lump there. And now all of a sudden, you're that far beyond uh, the pale. So like that is, um, it, it's it's those types of things that moving forward, um, I, I, one could only hope that there's enough imagination in this repeal and uh, 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 bill that, that all that will be in there. Well, speaking of screenings, I guess we can kind of move on to Planned Parenthood and all of the women that may be not able to get health care once Obamacare is quote-unquote repealed. Um, and I guess, like, a lot of people think that you can just um, delete a line, just delete a federal budget from Congress. And I obviously know that that's not true, but... What do you say to people who think that they can just up and get rid of it? Well, I mean, I guess, again, <laughs> they can do whatever they want. Yeah. It's a matter of how the American public decides yeah. to proceed with that. Um, do they want to let them do something? Does someone want to bring a court case to, uh, you know, through the court system that says you don't have the constitutional right to do that? Um, I mean, of course, those are all long processes, but... Um, we have to remember that uh, Congress is uh, elected, and our House of Representatives are elected every two years. So um, that's a very short turnaround, if you think about it. So in order for them to actually, I mean, Congress moves slowly. So before they're actually going to do anything, I, I'm seeing quite a few months, if not a year or so, for them to do anything. Well, now you're getting closer to that next election year. So how will the American public feel about that? Yeah. Mm -hmm. And um, one thing that I want to really stress is that federal tax dollars do not pay for abortions because there's this stigma that Planned Parenthood is only for abortions. But that is so far from the truth. The Hyde Amendment specifically, it specifically states that it bars the use of federal funds uh, to pay for abortions, except uh, if the woman's life is at risk or in cases of incest or rape. So who or what does actually pay for reproductive health? Um, there are many, there are many uh, providers of reproductive health services in the United States of America. Not all of them work for Planned Parenthood and they're uh, uh, widely 
um, accessible. Um, so uh, it's just like any other service. It's it's obtained through health insurance, uh, you know, fee for service, Medicare, Medicaid. Um, so reproductive health services are are just uh, a normal part of the the health provisional system in the United States. I think the thing with Planned Parenthood is that it's been associated with only abortions that people forget that it provides uh, uh, tons of things for women's health. And obviously part of women's health, except that separate that from men, is the reproductive part. Yeah. <clears throat> and so um, we have to remember that, yes, this, this is a, a widely known national organization that's providing this service, um, uh, but they provide a whole lot of other things, including uh, counseling for women who may be planning or trying to prevent a family for right now, um, but they also do screenings for sexually transmitted um, uh, diseases and uh, just general wellness and health of, of women. And we know uh, annual screenings are going to be important to uh, stop uh, certain female cancers. Yeah. And uh, those screenings, as you talked about, are so important if we can catch that early. What we can avoid in the cost of health care for not only that individual, but for that insurance provider as well. Yeah. I mean, I know... I know someone who actually, when she started her career, she couldn't um, get a great and wonderful health care program. So what she ended up doing was she went to these Planned Parenthood clinics for her yearly checkup. And for me being a female and going to college, I am worried that if they do repeal Obamacare and defund Planned Parenthood that I won't have somewhere to go. And I think that's how many of girls my age and just women in general feel. Well, I mean, it, it made, and that, again, I'm speaking partially of, of ignorance here, is, is that it, it then becomes a type of, like, you know, we're talking about taking one possible tool off out of the toolbox in terms of, of healthcare uh, providers. And so, um, to the extent that Planned Parenthood has been um, associated with abortions as opposed to really the other services that it does provide overwhelmingly um, is, is an issue of perception. And, um, and so um, I think that is uh, something that, um, that, again, is, you know, will, how will people respond politically and exert the various different pressures if they want this service and they want this to be uh, available, you know, they know the phone numbers and the emails of their elected officials to let them know. So, um, and it, it is, uh, I, I think that's, I, I think it'll, moving forward, the level of political, political engagement is going to be, um, uh, I think, much higher as a consequence for sure. So just going forward, um, can all of you kind of just give my generation and millennials a little assurance that everything will be okay and some strategies for us to take um, to get our voices heard. I can start on that. Um, I don't think your generation at all. I think you're just regular Americans like us. We're all in this together. doesn't matter. Um, I don't like separating us into classes of agnates that are based on age or gender or anything else like that. Um, you can have your voice heard because you're an American. And, um, you know, I was, when Casey versus Planned Parenthood um, was decided by the Supreme Court in 1994, it was an incredible surprise to us. I, mean, I, I remember literally waking up one day and saying, wait, what? What's going on here? This was 20 years after after Roe v. Wade. 
and we saw that reproductive rights were under threat. And the Supreme Court, and we went out and, and protested in the streets, and the Supreme Court, in their decision, cited the idea that as a nation, it is a settled matter that yeah. people are created equal and that the, the Equal Protection Clause that was the basis of Roe v. Wade and, um, and, the, and going further than that, I think it's called stare decisis, don't quote me on this, you should just look it up, but <laughs> it's this conceptual model that when a nation decides for themselves that this is the way things are, the Supreme Court has no right to change that. So, um, you know, starting uh, on January 20th, um, it seems as we've talked about in this in, in our in our time together that there are a number of things that are under threat. Um, so I think that starting January 21, it seems there's going to be something pretty good. I know that my wife and um, others I know um, uh, are going to uh, express themselves. So um, let's keep going. Well, I think that's the important part. Um, that we have to put the pressure on Congress. So many of us will complain, but complaining doesn't get us anywhere. Um, you got to complain to the people who have the power. You got to uh, convince them. You got to convince others. You got to lace up your shoes, right? Mm -hmm. And you got to do something about it. And if um, if Planned Parenthood, if healthcare, and, and if uh, immigration, it doesn't matter what the issue is. You, you got to take the lead in it now. And the problem I would say with younger people, and this goes back historically, younger people don't show up to vote. So it doesn't matter who are they going to cater to, they're going to cater to the people who show up. And I always think it's worse when we wait till it becomes so bad, then we're yelling and screaming. Like if this issue is important, you're, you're ahead of the game and you're already letting people know that. And um, if these issues, especially as a, as a woman, I know that you've got a, a personal interest being a female, as I do, I need to make sure that that these many men understand about the 51% of the population yeah. who are females, who have different needs, who have uh, different issues, who heck think differently too. Yeah. So we got to make sure that we're proactive in doing that. And that's the only way. Now it's work. It's work, and that means you don't watch TV, and, and you don't get to hang out with your friends because you gotta you got to politically organize. But um, if you want to change something, if you feel very passionate about it, then you got to go do the work. Yeah, and I would, uh, I would echo everything that everyone else has said, and I think it's also about being mindful of various different strategies, and, and, and one of them is realize um, you can't be playing checkers, you have to be playing chess and knowing yeah. like how all of these, the, the, the board is lined up. I know it's a, you know, the uh, type of uh, metaphor there. Um, but also, you know, we, you know, we're trying to build coalitions, and one of the things that uh, we, uh, we keep on talking about is how we have retreated into bubbles, right? So um, this is something that President Obama had spoken about in his farewell speech. And so the question is, you know, when I say something on Facebook or send something out on Twitter and all that, um, am, I, am I actually bringing people closer? Or it might feel good to ridicule, and it might feel really good to be sarcastic and have a zinger there. Um, and uh, however, you know, ridicule 
we have to understand that might not be the thing that is going to bridge any gaps, which is that it's discussion and it's empathy, empathy, empathy. And I think the more that we can humanize each other and how really how similar our experiences are, then we can start building bridges towards what we want to have happen. And it's not going to be, um, I think, so difficult because I, you know, study after study, when we see what are the things that Republicans want and what are the things that Democrats want, basically, they're the same. Um, it, there might be some culture issues that are, uh, you know, that are that might be implacable and may not be able to move. But things moving forward, I think the more that we can find that basic articulation, um, you know, but that's not going to happen when we are mean and we will use our ball and retreat into those bubbles, so to speak. So I really think that that is something that. Um, uh, in, in that mindfulness of engagement is, is, is essential. To quote Cecile Richards, Planned Parenthood is more popular than the entire United States Congress. If there were more members of Congress who could get pregnant, we wouldn't be arguing about birth control. Which brings us to the topic of our next episode, gender equality. Thank you for listening, and please tune in next time to We the People.